Well, good day, everyone. Love to <clears throat> beg your pardon. Love to see you today. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, EV. Uh, really excited to be uh, spending some time uh, looking at this fantastic passage together. Um, I want to start um, by asking you a question. Several years ago, I was at a bit of a crossroads in my life, and so I called someone I knew who had some wisdom. They're actually in this room. It's my godfather, Jim Ramsey. Where are you, Uncle Jim? You don't get to call him Uncle Jim, but I do. He's here. And I called him up and I said, um, you know, what should I do? And he asked me a question uh, which I found was particularly just um, harrowing for me, uh, able to help me focus on the future. And this was the question. um, If you could do anything in the world with the guarantee of success, what would it be? And I want to ask you that question this morning. If you could do anything in this world with the guarantee of success, what would it be? I I think I said something about um, family and my career. Um, I think if I ask people, and I've asked people this question um, several times, generally people consider something about uh, uh, health, uh, family, uh, property, where you want to live, what you want to do, that kind of stuff. I think those would be completely normal uh, responses. I wonder what you would say. But now let me ask you a different question. How do you think Jesus would answer that question? How would he answer it for his own life? If Jesus was able to think of his own life and look to the future, which he was and did, how would he define what success would look like? And also... How would he answer it for you? What would he want for you uh, in this life? You know, it's not possible to consider the person of Jesus of Nazareth for any um, significant period of time without becoming aware um, that whenever he spoke, whenever he did things, there was always a culture clash. In other words, he spoke and and said things um, that were always at odds to the values of the culture around him. Let me give you a few examples. Um, He had the opportunity... Uh, to wine and dine with the rich and the powerful, to become rich, powerful, uh, and and someone of enormous influence. But he always spurned it. He always turned his back on them and the opportunity for himself, and instead spent all of his time with the lowly of the community, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with fishermen, with ordinary people. At a time in culture and society when the religious elite were considered the highest of highs in a society, given absolute authority over everything, Jesus saved his sternest warnings for religious hypocrisy. He, he gave blessing to those who mourn. He recruited his, his followers by promising suffering. He came as a king, but insists that he's a servant. This is a man with different values, a different culture, who marches to his own drumbeat, regardless of the cost. And I want to say, it's no wonder that Jesus captivated people. And that's what we're looking at today in John 6, by the way. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people who like him, who are captivated by him. Jesus captivated people 2,000 years ago, but he's also captivated people all throughout history, whilst still simultaneously kind of confusing them. Look at this quote from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, the famous Jewish German scientist. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus captivates. He always has. 
So it should come as no surprise that when it comes to the topic of the main thing in life, what you most seek, what you're most looking for, what really matters, that what Jesus says about his own life and ours is completely at odds with the culture he was from, any culture over the last 2,000 years, and indeed our very culture today. Jesus is surprising and shocking. And, and what happens when he speaks is that some people love hearing what he says, but other people can't stand it. So what does Jesus say about his life and ours, the main thing, the thing that makes it matter? Well, that's the passage we're looking at today. And if you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 6. Um, as we continue looking at this fantastic, amazing uh, book of the Bible, and um, at this very deep, rich uh, period uh, in John's Gospel. Let me just give you a little bit of context uh, for you, whether you were here or not last week, uh, that will hopefully help us get on the same page. The first 24 verses of John chapter 6 have Jesus performing two miraculous signs. He feeds 5,000 men, probably around 10,000 people, with bread, with fish and loaves. Okay, and then he walks on the water. Now, after that... Jesus then goes over to Capernaum. He crosses the Sea of Galilee and goes to a town called Capernaum where his family lived, uh, actually. And he goes to the synagogue, kind of like the Jewish church, kind of. Uh, he goes to the local synagogue and he, he, he gives a sermon, a, a speech. And that sermon is what we're going to be looking at today. But there's two little things I want you to notice. Come and have a look at verse 24. Have a look at verse 24 of John chapter 6. What you see is that when Jesus went to Capernaum, he wasn't alone. He was incredibly popular. People followed him. The crowd of people followed him to Capernaum. They, they could not wait to hear what he said next. They liked him. They were interested by what he said. They saw his miraculous signs and they really thought, this is the guy. But now have a look at verse 66. Come to the very end, verse 66 of John chapter 6. Let me read it for you. Jesus finishes speaking and then he says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer followed him. Bookmarking this speech. One, popularity. Two, abandonment. Not everyone though. Have a look at the next verse. Twelve or so people remained. Now, what is it that made thousands of people go from loving him, interested in him, captivated to abandoning him? Well, quite frankly... It's exactly what we're looking at this morning. It's what Jesus says between verse 26 to verse 66 that is so explosively offensive, so powerfully odious to the crowd that they abandon him. Aren't you thrilled at the thought of being offended yourself this morning? I can't wait. The question to ask is, as you hear what Jesus says, which camp am I in? Do I stay or do I go? So, um, it's a very long reading. You might say we're going to look at the rest of chapter 6. Um, but what you'll find is that this speech Jesus gives has a lot of repetition in it. He says the same thing numerous, numerous times. And I think there's really three major themes um, that we're going to touch on this morning. Uh, Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission, and the consequence for us. Jesus' identity, mission, and I suppose what it means for us if those things are true. So first thing, let's have a look at Jesus' identity. Come to the beginning of the reading, verse 26. You'll see Jesus begins his speech to this enormous crowd of people um, in a very, very odd way, a very, very strange way indeed, by addressing the problem of his popularity. He begins his speech by criticizing the crowd. Look what he says, verse 
26, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This is a crowd who had seen the miraculous sign that Jesus had done, that eating of the bread that he had performed the miracle with when he fed the 5,000. And Jesus is saying very, very clearly, the reason you have followed me is not because you understand what was actually happening then, but simply because you ate this bread, you had your fill, and you want some more free food. But of course, there's more going on than that. Jesus is identifying a deep motive right at the heart of the crowd, an unhealthy and ugly motive, that whilst they saw Jesus and they saw that these miracles that he performed were a sign of something, they completely misinterpreted what it was and they wanted to superimpose their motivations onto Jesus. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. Look what happens. In verse 15, it becomes very clear that after performing the sign with the fishes and the loaves, the crowd want to make Jesus king by force. In other words, the crowd who are Jewish people oppressed by the Romans, they want to use Jesus to be a powerful warrior king, God's Messiah who would overthrow the Romans. They saw this sign of the miracle, the bread, as being a sign of Jesus' power to do just what they wanted. And now look at verse 30. Jesus challenges them, he criticizes them for their misinterpretation, and yet all they do is reinforce that same error. What do they say? Jesus, prove it to us. If you're saying that we're wrong, if you're saying we, we haven't got the right picture, give us another miracle. Prove it and then I will, I will only, we will only follow you if you're doing what we want, when we want it, how we want it. You're going to be our Jesus, our Messiah. Now just press pause there for a moment. Do you see that? They're trying to um, superimpose their desires onto Jesus. Do you see that happen in our world? I don't know if you follow... Um, American politics. Uh, if you do, just get into us. Beautiful. No, don't. Um, last year, there was a US presidential election. I'm not going to make any comment on <laughs> politics or anything like that, except to say what was fascinating was the religiosity of both um, presidential nominees. You've got Joe Biden, Democrat kind of left wing, Donald Trump, Republican kind of right wing. Both these men claim to be Christians. Um, and yet when you delve a little bit into their public policy platforms and private lives, as Christians, we might be suspicious. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure for either. I'm not sure. But we don't know their souls. I'm just saying that. What was fascinating, though, was that both of these men tried to utilize their alleged faith in order to do what? Get votes. In fact, they wouldn't just say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Episcopal, whatever they'd say. No, no, they would say... I'm a Christian, and I'm doing the work of God. I'm doing God's work. I'm doing Jesus' work. He's on my side. They would try to utilize, manipulate the power and influence of Jesus for themselves, try to get Jesus and, and craft him and mold him into what they wanted so they could use him for their motives. Do you see that? That's exactly what's happening in the crowd. Exactly. Now, if you and I had the opportunity with thousands of people just listening to our every word, and, and what those people were saying was, we're going to support you, we're going to love you, we're going to be your men, you just need to do a little bit of what we want, then you can do what you want. Most of us would be tempted to go, oh, okay, but not Jesus. Jesus will not be distracted, he will not be tempted, he will not be dismayed, he will not be pulled away from what he's come to do at all. And so to ensure that they're not continuing to misinterpret what the signs are saying... Jesus takes a metaphor and he uses it 
relentlessly to paint the real picture. And the metaphor he uses is that of bread. You might notice that in the reading. Bread is used a lot. Now, bread has deep connotations with the Old and the New Testament, but we'll put that to the side for a moment. So just to understand, Jesus has performed a miracle with bread, so he uses bread as a metaphor. He's criticized them for only wanting material, earthly goodness, you know, worldly bread. But to counter that, to reveal the truth about what's actually going on, look what he says in response. Look at verse 35. Verse 35 is the one that I... I want you to focus on. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And whilst that's just a very, very strange little expression for us, a curious one indeed, it's worthy of our taking note of because this statement is the key to unlocking everything else that Jesus says here. It's a statement that even within its brevity makes three stunning claims for us. One, Jesus' true identity. Two, Jesus' true mission, three, the true consequence of what that means for every human being on earth. All in that statement. Let's go through it and and try and see what he's saying. First of all, Jesus' true identity. Oh, if you were with us last week, um, you will remember that the, word, the words I am have a particularly strong connotation and connection with the Old Testament. I am is the name that God gives himself when he appears to Moses in the burning bush in the, bus of, in the book of Exodus. Seven times, maybe eight times in the book of John, Jesus uses the term I am to refer to himself, thus making the connection clear that he is divine. He is God. And that is a statement that was not missed by the Jewish audience he spoke to. We know that because a little bit later they tried to kill him for saying, I am. Jesus is making it very clear. I am more than a messenger. I am more than a holy man. I'm more than a prophet priest. I'm more than an earthly king. I will not be your Messiah. I am the eternal son of God. And now look at verse 45 and 46 in your Bible. I'll read it for you if you don't have one, but... Have a look at it, verse 45, 46. Jesus says this, Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus is claiming a unique relationship with God. God is his Father. He is God's Son. Only he has seen the Father. Also, He's making a claim of perfect unity between him and the Father. The consequence of that is explosive because Jesus is making the claim that you are unable to come to God unless you come to him. That if you reject Jesus, you reject God. If you reject God, you reject Jesus, a claim of exclusivity, uniqueness, unity, and equality with God, of divinity. Now, that is an explosive claim. It's an explosive claim 2,000 years ago for a particular reason. They thought it was blasphemous. They had such a high view of God that anyone claiming equality with God, that was a punishment worthy of death to many. But it's an explosive claim today as well, a, a different type of blasphemy perhaps, not a blasphemy against the sort of... Um, the holiness of God, but rather a blasphemy against the idea of tolerance, a blasphemy against um, 
um, the crime, the offence of exclusivity and exclusive claim, because we live in a, in a culture where the highest value, allegedly, is tolerance. That you just need to be able to say, well, what you think is true, what I think is true, and we can just agree, it's all true. What's true to you is true. It's highly held in our culture to a point. Of course, it all falls over in the face of intolerance, because the only thing you can't tolerate is someone being intolerant. Did anyone see Q&A this week? Of course you didn't, because who watches Q&A, let's be honest. Seriously. But maybe you saw a snippet. Um, at Q&A this week, there was a young man, a, pro, a Russian young man, who asked a question to the panel, who was speaking about Ukraine and the war, and he asked a question which was pro um, the invasion of Ukraine. Pro-Putin. Uh, let me just make it very clear to echo what Rosie said. I mean, just the tragedy happening there. It's devastating. Please don't misinterpret anything I'm about to say as being, well, no, that's a good idea. No, no. no. But what was fascinating was, as he asked this question, a very educated, you know, articulated question, and people started to boo him as he asked. Okay, people can do what they want. But Stan Grant, who I like, I think he's a great presenter, but Stan Grant... Um, he accepted the question, they talked about it, but 15 minutes later, he, he stopped the filming, he stopped the discussion, and he then spoke to the man and said, I'm sorry. I don't know if he said that. I'm sorry, actually. He said, I can't accept that question. It's been on my mind. Get out. Get out. You can't be here. That We can't tolerate, condone violence. And that question wasn't really condoning violence. It was... In our culture, we cannot tolerate intolerance. That's the only thing we can't... Tolerate. We're intolerant of intolerance. That's a cycle we can't get out of. And that's why Jesus is so problematic and such a problem for so many people. Einstein liked Jesus, but he didn't follow him. No, no, no. People love the idea, but they don't follow him. Why? Because Jesus makes the exclusive claim that he is God. And if you reject him, you reject God. He is unique, exclusive, united, and divine. Now, that offended people 2,000 years ago, but of course there's more to come. Because Jesus does not just claim to be God, to be united with his Father, but he also makes a claim in these little words, uh, brief words I should say, about his mission, what he's come to do. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus' mission is all tied up in that last word, the word life. In verse 33, have a look, he says where he's come from and what he's come to do. Jesus says, he's come from heaven to give life to the world. But what does it mean when he says the word life? Well, in John's Gospel, when Jesus talks about life, it's actually often presented the same way with two consequences simultaneously. Life that Jesus offers is something that people who believe in him, Christian people, can experience today, now, in this age, but also that we will experience for eternity in the life to come. And he addresses both of those benefits here. It's important that we understand that this is what Jesus is promising for those who would believe. Look at verse 40. Verse 40, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. That is a promise for anyone who believes of resurrection on the last day, of heaven, of eternity in a new creation with Jesus. But it's not just a promise for the future, although that is a glorious promise. Now look at verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So Jesus is promising, offering what he calls eternal life. And eternal life has direct consequences for today and for the eternal tomorrow. 
So what does it mean when he says eternal life? Well, he actually defines it really clearly in John 17. You don't have to go to it. I'll put it on the screen. John 17, verse 3. This is what Jesus says eternal life. I wonder if this is what you would define as eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing and being known by God. Not, it's not about the intellect here, although of course it's not against the intellect. It's talking about relationship. Verse 56, we are in Jesus, he is in us. The promise is that you and I could know God today, but also in a more full way in the future for eternity. I asked you at the beginning, if you could do anything in this life with the guarantee of success, what would you do? What would it be? I asked you, what would Jesus say for you? Now, that wasn't a test. You're not failing by not saying what Jesus would say. But I do want to make it clear that the main thing to Jesus about your life, the thing that he promises and he promises will actually satisfy you in a way beyond what you can imagine, beyond anything this world can offer, is the knowledge of God. It's not money. It's not power, it's not influence, it's not reputation, it's relationship. Knowing and being known by God. That's what he's come to bring, that's what he comes to offer. And he does so because he knows that it's what people most desperately need even if they don't know it. Now I want to just think about this topic for a moment, about dreams and desires and life. Because we do need to be very clear, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful with wanting are things in this world that are material and, and earthly. There's nothing wrong with wanting a house or wanting your children to flourish and, or to be married or, or all, you know, money, whatever those things, that's, that's okay. Um, desires on their own are not a problem. The problem with desire is when those desires become the main thing. When you start living in a world of if only, if only I had this, if only. When you create the new version of yourself, you know, the, the version where you've achieved what you're looking for, and in that version of yourself, you're finally content in life. Now, the reason that's a problem is twofold. There's two direct consequences, two enormous problems right at the core of this way of living. Number one, it doesn't work, it never works. You will never find contentment in created things, because you weren't designed that way. Um, yesterday, I woke up to a text message, and this is, it's weird, you know, but I woke up to a text message that Shane Warne had died. And I've got to be honest, I, like if you know me at all, I love cricket, okay? I used to see people sad about celebrities that they didn't know dying, and be like, my get, I'm sad. I got really, Shane, I'm of an age where Shane was my hero. I loved him. And not just what he did on the field, his personality, everything. Bogan, you know, just loose. I just loved him. I thought he was just, you know, a crazy guy. I read an article during, I just, uh, you've heard this, you know, 52 years of age, heart attack. I just, it's tragic. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying as making light of Shane at all, please, not at all. I read an article um, yesterday which said Shane Warne lived the life that most Australian men could only dream of. Maybe, but yeah, okay. Maybe, not maybe not the diuretics, but maybe okay, okay. World record holder of you know, test wickets, um, 
dated celebrities and movie stars, recognisable around the world. He leaves his children a, a fortune of $50 million. Um, you know, fame, uh, power, influence, authority, success. And yet, if you know anything about Shane Warne, you'll know that his life was not only defined by success, was it? His life was defined by an insatiable appetite for more. It was never enough. It was never enough. It was never enough. And that insatiable appetite for more led to broken marriages, broken promises, emotional devastation. That's problem one. It doesn't work. But there is a second problem. The second problem with living this way, trying to find your meaning, the main thing in life in created things, is that it consumes you. The pursuit of it distracts you. It takes over. And, and in so doing, in that distraction, in that consumption of mind, and how I've just got to do this, I've got to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and when I do those things, and, oh, you've achieved it, right, I've got to do it again, I've got to do it again, I've got to do it, round and round and round, like on a carousel that you never get out of. And the problem with that is that it distracts you from the thing that actually does matter the most. For all of Shane's success, for all of his money and the wickets and the reputation and the fame, where does he stand today? He stands in judgment before a holy God, and we don't know his soul. But God is not interested in how many wickets he took. He's not interested in how many women he slept with. And he's not interested in all of his money. Did Shane Warne know God? That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Look at verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Verse 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. My dear friends, it's possible to be a success in all manner of things in life, and yet in so doing, miss the point of the main thing completely. Jesus offers life. For you today. And a life of satisfaction because of its substance. It doesn't rot. It doesn't fade away. Because it's a relationship. Earthly material, bread, whatever it is, will rot and fade away. All of it will. But this, the relationship, the here and now that will be ours to come at the resurrection for eternity lasts forever. And that's what he's promising for those who would believe. So back in the synagogue, you can imagine the temperature is rising. I don't know what the temperature was of the day, but nonetheless, the heat would have been unbearable because Jesus was causing offence after offence after offence. He claims divinity and unity. He offers eternal life. He says exclusivity. He says it only comes through me. He's letting the crowd down. You can imagine they're like, no, no, Jesus, stop, 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 stop. I brought my friend here. What are you saying? Shush, shush. No, no, come on. No, no, say instead you're going to overthrow the Romans. You're going to... No, 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 but Jesus wouldn't have a bar of it. And yet the crowd remained. You see, it's what Jesus says next that pushes that crowd from discouragement and disappointment to desertion. Because Jesus, after identifying his own identity, after identifying his mission, 
He then explains how Jesus' identity, how his identity and his mission interact with our life and what it actually means to be a disciple of the one true God. To a group of people, Jewish people, who were convinced of their own righteousness before God, Jesus explains how you take hold of this eternal life he's offering. Verse 47, look what he says here. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And the key word there is believe. Four more times he repeats the same thing. Now, that might seem straightforward enough. You might like, well, newsflash, religion says believe in God. Terrific. Yes, that's absolutely what Jesus says. You must believe in Jesus in the exclusivity and divinity of Jesus to to take hold of the life that he offers. But that's not all that he says. He then reveals what to believe in and how you actually do it. Look at verse 51. Now remember the metaphor, the bread of life, he's talking about himself. Verse 51, Jesus says about himself, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now hold on. Continuing the metaphor where he refers to his own body as bread, he he says these two additional claims of what it is to take hold of the life that he offers. One, he will give his bread, he will give it all to the life of the world. And secondly, whoever eats this bread will live forever. It's very important we clarify what Jesus is meaning here. Jesus is making a direct connection to this Jewish audience with the Old Testament again. All the way back to the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. The Passover lamb that was killed as blood wiped on the doorway so that God's people could live. He was sacrificed this lamb for the lives of the eldest sons of, of Israel. When Jesus speaks of giving up his body, his bread, his body, for the life of the world, he's talking about his death. And that's a connection the Jewish audience did not miss. It's important we don't as well. Jesus is prophesying, predicting, and promising his crucifixion, but not as a tragedy for life. However, he then says we need to eat the bread. And in fact, verse 54, he expands this even more in a way that on first reading sounds gross. Okay, listen to what he says, verse 54. Whoever would eat my flesh and drink my blood is the one who who has eternal life. Now, what does he mean, eat my flesh? What does he mean, drink my blood? Well, look at verse 40. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, I want you to just compare verse 54 and verse 40. Can you do that there? Verse 40 says this, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, now, do you see the connection? Jesus says almost identical things and statements. He just replaces eating flesh, drinking blood with the word belief. When Jesus talks about eating his flesh, eating the bread, drinking the blood, it is a metaphor, the continued metaphor, for believing in his death on your behalf, in trusting in his death on your behalf. If you believe that Jesus died for you on your behalf, you will live. And it's that message that's the very center of Christianity. That's what um, we call in, in the church and have done for thousands of years, the gospel. The good news. The word gospel means good news. What is the good news? That Jesus died and rose from the dead. He came down from heaven as God. He died, he rose from the dead so that those who believe in him 
can be forgiven because he took the punishment that we deserve. And yet, it's that statement. Come to verse 66. It's that statement that made many of the people there. And the people, you might take notice in verse 66, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back. Now, disciples doesn't mean they were believers. It just means they, were fo- they followed him around. But these people were not strangers. They weren't people who were just there, oh, there's, a, there's something going on over there. Oh, that's a bit weird. Drinking his blood. No, thanks. These were people who liked Jesus, who were intentionally following Jesus. They're the ones who turned back. This good news is not considered good news at all to many of them. Now, why is that? What is it about what Jesus said right there, what we call the good news, that led to so many of his followers abandoning him? Well, if you take the big picture, step back and consider the whole chapter, that whole speech, there's several things we can identify. The claim of divinity and exclusivity, that would have cheesed some of them off. Um, the connection of himself with the Passover lamb, uh, that would have been a, a, an issue for some of them. Um, he criticised them, he criticised their motives, he, he sort of undercut what they found satisfaction in, that would have done it as well. All of those things undoubtedly played a part, but actually, um, I'm convinced that the reason this final section was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, is because there was actually something deeper going on in their offence, something incredibly personal, which Jesus struck right at the heart of, and actually, this is where I think we can step out of... Um, a synagogue in Capernaum 2,000 years ago, and instead say, the thing that offended the people 2,000 years ago transcends culture. It transcends time and history and community. By that I mean to say the very same thing that offended those people 2,000 years ago is the very same thing that offends most people about Christianity today. It's the very same thing that makes Christianity irrelevant, repugnant, unattractive, to so many. And I think it's best summarized by what Jesus says in verse 63. I think this is the key verse here to explaining the offense. Verse 63. After um, pushing back against what Jesus has said, Jesus, he speaks directly to the crowd and he says, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Now, just keep that there. I want you to look at those. The flesh counts for nothing. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says flesh there? Well, he's not speaking about his own flesh. He's speaking about ours. What does the word flesh mean when Jesus uses it here? Well, he's speaking about our very being, our humanity, our human effort. Now, hold that thought. Hold that. So he's saying to these people, your human effort counts for nothing. Now, Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to people who are utterly convinced that they were righteous before God because of a combination of their background, behavior, and belief. That they were from the right ethnicity, the right race, that doing what they considered the right things before God would mean that they were accepted by God. In other words, that they would be good enough for God, acceptable by God's standard through what they did. Their flesh, the efforts of people, that was crucial. What about today? My dear friends, if you've never looked at any other religion before, let me encourage you to do so with this verse in mind. Because when you do so, what you will discover is that every other religion in the world has something unifying it together. And what that is, 
is that the divinity claimed to be at the center of that religion, the God, the goddess, the goddesses, the, the, the force, whatever that you think that it is, proclaims that what that being is most interested in about you is your goodness. And by goodness, I mean, you know, uh, morality, religiosity, charity, generosity. Be a good person. Do this, do that. Face this way, face that way. Get this haircut. Don't get that haircut. Eat that meat. Don't eat that meat. Do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. And then God will accept you. And not just official religions, by the way. Every form of unofficial, uh, vague spirituality believes the exact same thing. And people who are not spiritual at all, well, they think the universe revolves around the exact same thing again. And of course, tragically, many people believe that Christianity says the same thing. And yet, my dear friends, what Jesus lays out incredibly clearly for us is that when it comes to the main thing in life, knowing and being known by God, that there is absolutely no hope of salvation or any spiritual insight or gain that can be achieved through human effort. It is entirely based on the movement and action of God. On our own, we can never achieve eternal life. Why? Because we're too far gone. Our good deeds are nothing more than a fresh coat of paint on a condemned building. But because God still loves us, what does he require? He puts his hand out to rescue. And what he requires is simply that we believe that we trust, that we take hold of his offer of rescue. The Spirit gives life. And that means there's no pretensions, no self-congratulations, no agenda, no self-righteousness. And it's that point that causes the most offense because it means there's nothing imminently lovable about you to God that makes him want to save you. It's not on the basis of your goodness and your charity and your religiosity. No, it's to say when you think of your own life, you're not the hero of your story. You're the villain, the villain and the victim. You've inherited sin and perpetuated it again and again. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, listen, we, um, we see conflict around this teaching again and again and again in the world. Um, but there's one place in particular that we've seen it in church history that I just want to finish on very, very quickly. And, and that is the topic of communion, which we're about to take um, in a moment. And when I say communion, you might have called it the Lord's Supper or uh, the Eucharist, if you have a Catholic background. Now, the Gospels tell us, as many of you will know, that the communion was initiated by Jesus the night before he died. He took bread and wine and told his disciples to eat and drink in remembrance of, of his death. Communion is what? It's a sign pointing where? To the cross. However, if you fast forward several centuries into the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, some people began to believe that actually... John 6 is where communion was first talked about. More than that, that this passage is actually all about communion. And they believe that because of the interaction in verse 51 to 58, where Jesus says, I am the living bread. Whoever eats this bread will live. This bread is my flesh. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And people began to believe that what Jesus was saying is that in order to have eternal life, you must drink and eat at communion. Why? Because what Jesus must be saying is that the bread and the wine and the juice was actually the physical body and the real blood. Not symbol, but literal. And tragically, and I say this very carefully, um, this is still the belief taught by the Catholic Church. 
And, and I want to say, if you are a Catholic, we, we love you, we love that you're here. It's not attacking It's rather to say, I'd love you to look at this passage yourself and think, what do you, what do you reckon? Am I telling the truth? Am I right? What, what, do you, what do you think? Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? It's just communion. Who cares? Well, actually, it is a very, very big deal. And if you just pull the thread of where it goes, you'll see why. Because if you believe that this passage is about communion, suddenly Christianity takes a whole new direction. Because suddenly, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. If you believe this is a passage about communion, then what you must believe, and in fact millions do, is that the way to salvation is by partaking in communion. Now, not on its own. You still need to believe. You still need to try all that stuff. However, that what matters is not primarily relationship or belief, but ritual. Millions of people believe that. And so they disregard relationship. They disregard belief. They, they turn away from it. And instead, they focus on what they call the sacrament, the ritual of, of taking communion, believing that somehow this is how, how they're forgiven. And I believe this is utterly tragic because not only is it leading many people astray from the truth, the beauty of the gospel, but also, can I say, it's actually the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, do you see? He's not saying, the flesh counts for something. You do a little bit, I'll do a little bit, combined. He says, the flesh counts for nothing. It's by grace. God is the one who gives the gift of life. God is the one who offers eternal life through belief. He's the one who even gives us the gift of belief. It's all God, not by our human effort, not by our energies, through him. After the crowd desert him, let me finish, verse 68, verse 67. Jesus turns to the 12 people remaining, his, his closest disciples, and he says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? should be on the screen. You don't want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone, you have the words of eternal life. And you see, this is the power of the cross. The cross is a light that divides. It's a light that either sheds light upon our sinfulness and draws us to salvation or pushes away. When Jesus views the world and what matters most, what he yearns for us is eternal life, the knowledge of God. He died and rose from the dead so that it would happen, so that we may experience it. And so this morning, let me ask you, have you put your trust in Jesus for eternal life? Have you eaten, drunk, believed in what he's done for you? You see, Jesus wants those of us who have done so to enjoy him today, to not find our satisfaction in dissatisfying things, but rather remind ourselves of the knowledge of God as the centrality of our faith. But for those of us here today who do not yet know God, well, I don't believe you're here on accident. I don't believe you're here by fluke. Jesus is calling everyone everywhere to believe. In a moment's time, and we're going to celebrate communion together after we sing. Not as a ritual we do to prove ourselves to God, but rather as a sign pointing us towards the cross. 
And I want to encourage you, if you are someone who has not yet put their trust and faith in Jesus, um, before we partake and celebrate in communion during this song, um, why don't you do just that? Why don't you take hold of the great gift he is offering? Take hold of eternal life. Let me pray. Father God, we give you great thanks for your son Jesus, the bread of life. Father, we're sorry for what we've done. And sorry for the way that we've rejected you and rejected your son. All of us here are guilty. Guilty of sin. Guilty of trying to prove ourselves to you. Guilty of trying to find our satisfaction in worldly things. Father, forgive us. Help us take hold of the promise you've given us in Jesus and through his death and resurrection. That if we believe, we may receive eternal life, the knowledge of you now and forever. Father, I pray this all through the name of your Son, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen.